Open your Bibles again to Romans chapter 12. Romans, the 12th chapter. We are spending a few weeks here on the first two verses and that for good reason. If there were ever a summary of what Christianity is and the life and the lifestyle that we pursue, these are the two verses. There are verses that many people have memorized, many people know, but they're certainly dense with meaning and application and certainly verses that we need to pause and really mine and extract what the Lord wants from us from every single phrase, even from every single word. Romans chapter 12. Let me read verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul says to the Romans, Therefore I urge you, brothers, I urge you by the mercies of God, Two, present your bodies as a living and, and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I love to read. I love to read Christian books. Um, I have a lot of books, more than I've read. In fact, some Times some people come into my office and they see all the books and they say, wow, have you read all these books? And I like to say, some of them twice. <laughs> because I have read some of them twice, but I've not read all those books. <laughs> Typically a stack of books in my office, stack of books, table in our living room, a stack of books by my bed. But there's one that I've been just working through a little bit in my devotional exercises over the last few weeks by one of my favorite authors. His name is Morris Roberts. He was the editor for many years of the Banner, and Tr Banner of Truth magazine. Uh, an exceptional writer. In fact, when I read something that Morris Roberts has written, it, it, it's, it's a little embarrassing because almost every line is underlined. He has a few books, uh, The Thought of God, and this book that I'm going to quote from, The Great God of Wonders, that... Um, that are, that are uh, compilations of essays he wrote for the Banner of Truth magazine when he was the editor. I was reading this week uh, a chapter, an essay, on the secret workings of God. And I'm always amazed at how what I'm reading, just devotionally, and what I'm studying for sermons, come into clear coalescence. And this was certainly one of those times, because the issue of being accepted by God or not being accepted by God, God putting us to the test, the issue of worship all comes into full focus in this quote. So it's three paragraphs, but I want to share it with you. And by the way, I think we'll put these quotes um, uh, on somehow or on the website so you can access them if you'd like to. Morris Roberts writes this. God's wisdom is seen in the way in which he both reveals himself and also conceals himself. 
A perfect economy is exercised by God in the degree of his self-revelation and self-concealment. Just enough of God is revealed to leave us without excuse if we choose to ignore him. And enough is revealed for those who believe in him to be fully assured of him. By this arrangement, God's wisdom has left room for doubt in all who prefer to doubt him and really enough for sure confidence in all who trust him. God is glorified in this manner because in this way he places all mankind under a lifelong test as to whether we shall trust him or not. The nature of all God's dealings, therefore, in this life is to place us always in a situation in which we are required to take trust on him. We are on trial in this life in all that we do. Every decision we make is a test of our moral character and indicts, more or less, what we think about God. Can I read that sentence again? Every decision we make is a test of our moral character and indicates, more or less, what we think about God. The friendships we make, the places we go, the plans we form are all more or less an index of our attitude towards God. Even our outward doubts, inward doubts, and fears about situations in life reflect the way we either believe and trust God or else doubt and distrust Him. God has constructed man's life on earth in this way. Not accidentally, but purposely. Because in this life, all through life, we are on probation. The final judgment day will be the assessment of how we have lived and it will announce to all the world both what we have thought of God and what, as a consequence, we deserve to enjoy or else suffer in eternity. We're on probation, he says. Now, does that mean that we're still trying to work our way to heaven and we're somehow in a doubtful situation with God if we believe him? No, no, no. He's saying the same thing that Paul says here. We are living in such a way that our lives are living sacrifices that are either acceptable to God or unacceptable to God. We're on probation. He's watching. The first 11 chapters of Romans describe God's faithfulness in the gospel and say that we are justified by faith, by what we believe about God. That's what Roberts just said, that we, we are to live out our thought, our belief in God, our theology, as we said last week, is manifest in what we do, what we say, how we think. Remember Romans 14, 23, we'll get there. He who doubts is condemned if he eats because he's eating not from faith. Just the menial tasks of nutrition, hydration. Whatever is not from faith is sin. That's an incredible statement. God has self-concealed himself and self-revealed himself so that we would have faith. We need faith in God because we don't see God as 
our human eyes and physical eyes would see things. We have to live by faith. And the whole of first, uh, the first 11 chapters of Romans is to describe the life of faith. We are justified by faith alone in Christ alone to the glory of God alone. It's a life of faith. Now, a life of faith, Paul's going to describe to us here in these first two verses of chapter 12, is really a life of worship. Worship and serving God are built on faith. Faith manifests itself in a life of worship. If you look at the last phrase in verse 1, this is our spiritual service of worship. Dan Block defines worship with these words. Very excellent definition. Reverential human acts of submission and homage before the divine sovereign in response to his gracious revelation of himself and in accordance with his will. That's a good tagline to these first two verses in Romans 12. We're responding to God's gracious revelation and gift of himself in how we live Listen to how William Temple defines worship. He lived from 1881 to 1944, and this was in his commentary on John. He says this. It's just rich. Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of our heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose, and all of this gathered up in, here it is, adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable, and therefore the chief remedy for that self-centeredness which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. What a great insight. Worship is dying to self and becoming alive to God. Worship is adoring God because we stop worshiping and adoring who? Self. That's exactly what Paul is describing here in these first two verses of Romans chapter 12. Kent Hughes says this, the greater our comprehension of what God has done for us, the greater our commitment to him should be. So, we can measure how, how excellent, how biblical our theology is by how we live. And we can also define our theology by how we live. We can look at life and determine theology we can look at our theology and see how we live life, or it ought to be the case. This is captured in the, the hours and hours we took to even frame up our mission statement. We exist to magnify God and spread a passion for his glory by making disciples and shepherding them to value Jesus Christ above all else. What's the next phrase say? In every dimension of life all of life as regulated by the word of God. Said another way, Paul is saying that real, biblical Christianity is indeed radical Christianity. It involves radical Christian living. It involves all of us. We'll see in a moment, it involves our bodies and our mind. So we broke it down beginning last week into four components. 
And I want to confess to you that I had plans on finishing up. We talked about the first one last week. Plan on finishing up the, the last three this week. And we're only going to get through number two. And I think you'll understand why when we, when we begin looking at this. Four components for living a radical, authentic Christian life. Now, the word radical and authentic, I mean to be uh, synonyms. Authentic and radical are the same. It's all in when you read the Bible. Four components for living a radical, authentic Christian life that Paul provides for us in these first two verses of Romans 12. The first we find in the first section of verse 1, a doctrinal motivation for radical commitment. What's What's the motivation? Why do we do this? A doctrinal motivation for radical commitment. He begins by saying, therefore, I urge you, urge is the word parakaleo, which is the same word attached to the Holy Spirit in noun form, paraclete, one who comes alongside, who encourages, who equips. I come alongside you, I urge you, I want to motivate you. Brothers, I'm in this with you. We're all siblings because of adoption, Romans 8 and 9 say. We're all siblings because we are children of God. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. And we took two weeks to go through what those mercies are. Really interesting is he uses the word mercy. I would fully expect after 11 chapters of talking about God's grace that he would say, I urge you, brethren, by the grace of God or the graces of God. But he doesn't. Remember, grace and mercy are two sides of the same coin in terms of what God has done to us and for us in the gospel. Grace is God's gift to us of what we don't deserve. He gives us unmerited favor, favor that belongs only to Christ. He gives it to us. He gives us what we don't deserve. We love his grace. By grace, we've been saved, right? Mercy, though, is the opposite. Mercy is him not giving us what we do deserve. Wrath. The consequences of every one of our sins. Can you imagine if every one of the sins that you and I committed, forget this year, this month, this week, today, if we got the full due penalty for that, can you imagine what life would be like? When he looks back at the gospels as, as gospel, as motivation that is explained in 11 chapters, what pulls him in to motivation, what pulls him into encouraging us and urging us is that God's been merciful to us. He hasn't given us what we deserve. That's a healthy view of God, a healthy view of his wrath, which he begins in chapter 1, a healthy view of his judgment, a healthy view of his holiness. When our boys were younger and we, uh, our discipline took the form of the rod of reproof, as Proverbs describes, we would take them to a private place, explain to them what they had done, and administer um, God's justice to areas of their backside that he had prepared for such justice. And every now and then, not often, but every now and then, we would get them in that place, explain to them what they'd done, explain to them what they deserved, and say, but you know what? Today, we're going to give you mercy, and you don't get a spanking. Great picture, you say, right? Except, until the next time, when they had done something for which they deserved the rod of reproof. And we would come to that moment, explain to them what they'd done, explain to them what they did, and then we would hear this. We would hear this. Can you give me mercy? <laughs> we didn't get hell. We don't get all the consequences for our sin. 
and it makes us say, what a God who would not give us what we deserve. We experience his mercy, but not free and not cheap because the wrath that we deserve, the spiritual paddling and death, not only in this life, but in the one to come in hell, has been paid for us by, by God's son on the cross instead of us in our place. He gave us mercy because he demonstrated his wrath on him for us. Paul says, by the mercies of God, I want to urge you to live differently. The gospel then has radical ethical implications in every dimension of life, as we'll see in body and mind, material and immaterial, internal and external. Our commitment to Christ is to be comprehensive. It's a new way of living And it cannot be confined to any one part of life. It's comprehensive. It's clear in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a, what's the word? New creature. Old things have passed away. New things, a new life has come. We live differently than we used to. Robert Mounts, great Greek uh, Greek, uh, uh, scholar says, theology in isolation promotes a barren intellectualism. I know people like that. They just, they just like to talk theology all the time, but they don't live very much of it. Theology in isolation produces, promotes a barren intellectualism, but ethics, apart from theological bases, a base, is impotent to achieve its goals. Theology and living are connected and cannot be disconnected. Show me what you think. Tell me how you live. And I'll tell you what you believe. Believe what the Bible says, and it should result in a certain way of living. And that's what Paul's talking about here. That was number one. We covered that last week on the first component for living a radical, authentic Christian life, a doctrinal motivation for radical memory at the mercies of God. Number two, now we turn our attention to the last part of verse one. An intentional sacrifice for radical commitment. An intentional sacrifice for radical commitment. He says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present, literally bring, offer your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. Here's the key word, key phrase, acceptable to God. That implies there's a way to live that's not acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, one of the reasons that we need to park here for this week is that we we need to understand that this verse is loaded, loaded with Old Testament understanding. If we don't have that in our ram, if we don't have that in our our thinking as we move into this verse, we're not going to figure out, we're not going to properly apply what Paul is talking about here. So we need to look for just a moment at the Old Testament sacrificial system. Bear with me, but hold on, okay? There are five major types or categories of sacrifices in the Old Testament. These were things that you would build, bring to the temple and leave or give to the priest or the, uh, the one who was doing the sacrificing, the administrator there, as your service of worship. Offerings in the Old Testament. There was burnt offerings, Leviticus 1, Leviticus 6, Leviticus 8, Leviticus 16. There were grain offerings, Leviticus 2, Leviticus 6. Peace offerings, Leviticus 3, Leviticus 7. Sin offerings, Leviticus 4 and 5 and 6 and 8 and 16. A lot about sin offerings, obviously. And trespass offering, 
Leviticus 5, 6, and 7, which even include sacrifices for sins that you don't even know you did. Each of these sacrifices involved certain elements. They were either an animal or the fruit of the field. They had specific purposes. And all throughout the Old Testament, you see this sacrificial system coming up, right? It's loaded. The whole th- you can't understand the Old Testament without having a, a grip on the sacrificial system. Now, these sacrifices were even split in different ways. They, if you brought the sacrifice that was broken up into at least two and sometimes three portions. There was God's portion that was burnt up in the actual fire of the, uh, the temple, there were the por- this portion for the priests or the, the Levites. Remember, the Levites' job was to do the ministry of the service of the temple and the sacrificial system and uh, orders of worship, and they didn't have jobs outside, so the priest, by virtue of God's grace, would take part of the sacrifice, and that was what they would live on. That was their food. That was what they ate. And sometimes there was a third that was kept by the person offering the sacrifice. The Day of Atonement was kept entirely. Remember, you bring the lamb, uh, Leviticus, excuse me, uh, Exodus 12, you would bring the lamb in, the spotless, blemishless lamb into your house. It would live there for five days. You would develop affection for this lamb. It was, it was done on purpose by God so that you would see how precious and innocent this little baby lamb was, this baby sheep was. Then on the fifth day, the father would butcher the lamb in front of the family, and then they would do what? They would eat it. Even breaking it down farther, these sacrifices can be characterized as either voluntary or mandatory offerings. There were some, like the sin offering, that was mandatory. You have to do this. And there were other uh, offerings that were voluntary that you could do as an additional way, additional way of sacrificing for the Lord. Let me boil it all down to this. this. A sacrifice, to bring a sacrifice to God meant to give up something of significance and value and sustenance. Something you would not live without. But the biggest breakdown of the sacrificial system falls into two simple categories. Sacrifices that were acceptable to God and sacrifices that were what? Unacceptable to God. Paul understands that, so he brings that loaded imagery into Romans 12. Uh, Just for a moment, take your Bibles and turn back to Malachi chapter 1. Go to Matthew, take a hard left. It's the last chapter in the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 1. In this book, Malachi, the Lord through Malachi, talks about unacceptable sacrifices. And again, you need to understand this idea of acceptable and unacceptable before we come to Romans 12, 1. It's imperative. Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? This is God speaking. If I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priest who despise my name, but you say... How have we despised your name? This is interesting. We're going to find out bringing unacceptable sacrifices God took as despising his name. His name is his entire personality. 
You are, he, he was the answer. You are presenting defiled food on my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised, not held in reverence. But when you present, here it is. Here's what they had done. You present, you offer the blind for sacrifice. Is it not evil? You offer or present the lame and the sick. Is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? What's going on here? They were looking at their flocks. And they were finding the animals that were blind. You know what that typically meant? Not a lot of animals are born blind. Some are, but they typically don't make it. A blind animal is typically one that was old and worn out. You're bringing me your blind. You're lame. You're sick. You're taking the animals that you could do without, that you don't want. That would not be a sacrifice at all. You're taking what's not important to you and you're giving it to me. You're giving me your leftovers. Verse 9, but now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to you? Repent. With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord? Verse 10, this is what we got, want to get to. On that there were among, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle the fire on my altar. Don't even come with these, these, these sacrifices. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts. Here it is. Nor will I accept an offering for you. That's important. There are certain sacrifices in God's mind that are acceptable and certain that are not. So in Romans 12, 1, Paul says, we have to present an offering that is what? Acceptable. Meaning there's a possibility of presenting an unacceptable sacrifice. I love the story in um, 2 Samuel 24, you can just listen, uh, of David. He's instructed by God. There was a plague going on in Israel. He was instructed by God to build an altar away from Jerusalem, offer a sacrifice there. So Gad came to David. This is 2 Samuel 24, 18 and following. Gad came to David that day and said to him, go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite. David went up according to the word of God, of Gad, rather, um, just as the Lord had commanded. Arauna looked down and saw the king and his servants crossing over toward him. And Arauna went out and bowed his face to the ground before the king. David's coming. I'm just a landowner away from Jerusalem. Here comes the king. Then Arauna said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? Why, why are you here? David said to him, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be held back from the people. And Arauna said to David, let the Lord my king take it. Offer up what is good in his sight. Look, the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for wood. I've got everything you need. You can have it. The place, the altar, the wood, the animal. You can have everything and make this sacrifice. Sacrifice. 
Everything, O king, Araunah gives to the king. And Araunah said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. However, the king said to Araunah, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, which cost me nothing. So he gives him 50 shekels of silver. He overpaid, and he did that. What a principle. David says, I'm not going to offer to the Lord that which didn't cost me anything. Sacrifices were intended to cost something, something valuable, something loved, whether money or sustenance or resources. And what Paul does here with this sacrificial motif is stunning. It's just stunning. Because if you have all that in your mind, the Old Testament sacrificial system, and you come to this verse, you're going to be stopped in your tracks. Perhaps the most important thing to notice here is that Paul does not tell the believers to give or make a sacrifice. He tells them to be the sacrifice. Nowhere in the Old Testament is a person told to be the sacrifice. But specifically, he gets very, very detailed. He says, by offering our bodies as living sacrifices. Now, let me just say right now, we're going to come back to this next week because it's motivated by the transforming of our mind in the next verse. We're going to backfill that. But just know right now, he's talking about the body. It's remarkable. Sacrifices are living. A living sacrifice. Sacrifices don't live. By definition, you kill the animal. It's dead. It can only be sacrificed once. This is a living sacrifice which is offered in perpetuum, over and over, without cessation. It's living. It's always being sacrificed. Not only that, look at the second descriptor. It's a holy sacrifice. Holiness, as you know, is set apart for God and morally pure. So put that into the, uh, the life we live in our bodies. It's to be holy and pure and living and ongoing. Tom Schreiner writes in this excellent commentary on Romans, a genuine commitment to God embraces every area of life and includes the body in all its particularity and concreteness. Why? Because the body is the house, the tent, he calls it, that we express ourselves from our souls. We have two dimensions of living, mind and body, internal, external, corporeal and spiritual. But the body is a focus. Listen to the full context of a passage I know you know well. It's Paul speaking to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12 says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. I could enjoy any liberty but it's not profitable. It's not, if it doesn't increase my godliness, I'm not going to do it. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. I'm in control of my 
body. It's not in control of me. Food is for the stomach. The stomach is for food, but God will do away with them both. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. He gave us this physical dimension. I'm hoping in the new creation I'll be a taller one. But he gave us this as, as us. This is the way we express our souls. It's where we, it's our, he calls it in 2 Corinthians the tent in which we live. It's a temporary tent. It's where we live. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Members as parts of the body, hand, eyes, feet. Your, your bodies are parts of the members of Christ. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? He's talking about sexual immorality. May it never be. Don't use your body in any sense in sexual sin. Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For the Lord says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality, he says. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know? Are you ignorant? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are are not your own. You say, what does that mean? He tells us in the next verse. You have been bought with a price. Now, what you know of the gospel, that might in, incline you to say, well, of course, he's going to keep my soul forever in heaven, and you would be right. But here he says, you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your what? Body. That well-known cliche, he is Lord of all or not Lord at all is completely accurate. Now look at the last phrase of Romans 12, 1 for a minute, which is your spiritual service of worship. Your spiritual service of worship. Interesting uh, Greek phrasing here, if I can just take you into that level for a moment. The word spiritual, your spiritual service, the better translation that is really reasoned or rational, thought through. And I understand how the translator said spiritual. It's not talking about uh, spiritual in, in, in terms of living forever uh, ever in that uh, description as much as it's spiritual as opposed to physical, you're, you're, you're immaterial. That's why I think the better translation really is reasoned or rational, your thinking part, your rational service of worship. We're going to find out in the next verse that we're going to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. What he's talking about is a deliberate, intentional act. C.E.B. Cranfield, I love these words. Man, he's so... So insightful, his commentary on Romans. He says, intelligent understanding of worship, that is, worship which is consonant with the truth of the gospel. Indeed, nothing less than offering the offering of one's whole self in the course of one's concrete living, the body, and one's inward thought, the mind, feelings and aspirations, but also in one's words and deeds. The only reason someone would do this is because they thought Jesus was worth it. But the most important phrase I skipped over in order to come back to. 
Look in Romans 12 again. We're to make this sacrifice of ourselves with our bodies in order to be, what's the litmus test? Acceptable to God. The fact that Paul would say this is a, a humbling and a terrifying reality. It means that there are, there's the possibility that a life could be offered as a sacrifice which would be unacceptable. These are those, this is the, the account of those who would claim to know Christ and not live for him. Those who would willfully and willingly hold back sin and try to live a dual lifestyle and have a, have a split personality, one at church and one at work, one with the family, one elsewhere, where we're not comprehensive in mind and body, ever, only, all. We can't do that perfectly, but we can lean toward that in every dimension of life as God regulates. Are we being acceptable by God? You understand now when Marsh Roberts says we're on probation? Not probation as a Christian, whether we're going to go to heaven or hell, but 1 Corinthians 3 does tell us we will all give an account. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us we are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for the lives, not for heaven and hell, but for rewards and for a lack of rewards in the final judgment. So if we're going to sacrifice our bodies to be acceptable to God, and we'll find out how to do that next week by the renewing of our mind, being transformed. Wait till you get to that word. That's a workhorse metamorphosis, but we'll wait for that. In order to do that, we need to consider what are we doing that proves the gospel's worth in our life? Do people see what God sees that our sacrifices of, of our very bodies, our lives, our thinking, our living are worth the gospel, that the gospel is worth these kind of sacrifices, that it's worth this kind of radical, extreme commitment to the one who died for our souls and who died to purchase our bodies. How do we do that? Well, we address sin and repent of it. We're soft to sin. When someone brings something to us, we're not judgmental, we're not argumentative, we're not defensive. We say, thank you for loving my soul and helping me see what I need to correct to make my life more acceptable to God as a living sacrifice. We pursue this kind of lifestyle and life before God and being accepted when we address and tear down the idols in our lives. All of us have idols. You say, what is an idol? Here it is. An idol is anything any experience that you will sin in order to get or experience or that you will sin because you don't get or experience that reality. Those are the idols in our lives, and we all have them. If you don't know the idol in your life, I can assure you the devil does. And God most certainly sees it. We pursue this by considering the value of everything we have and do and comparing it to Christ. We compare it to Christ. Jesus longs to have any pleasure and any experience and any possession compared to him so that he can show how much more valuable and precious he is. He stands the test of comparison. When we look rightly on his 
beauty and majesty and the person he is and the work he's done. And it also means that we use and care for our body because it belongs to Jesus. He purchased it with his death. This makes a big difference when you're sitting alone with your computer. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Look, this, this has bearing on what we eat and how we eat, if we exercise, if we don't. I know Paul says bodily exercises of little profit, but spiritual disciplines are more profitable, but it does have a little profit. But we should be taking care of our, our tents at some level, the tents in which we, we live, and not giving access to the enemy for the exercise of sin in our bodies. This is not Neoplatonism where you know, the body is bad but the soul is good. The body is where we express our souls, right? We've been purchased for the price and how great and how infinite was the cost of that price. I exhort you therefore by the mercies of God, by the fact that God has poured out his righteous and furious wrath on his son in the stead and instead of those who believe in him that he could give us his righteousness by simply believing, by living the life of faith and worship. This is our spiritual service of worship. So here's your, here's your takeaway. Ready? You live perpetually in a worship service called you. Everywhere, all the time, there's never a close in prayer. And it's either acceptable to God or unacceptable to God by how we utilize the bodies he's given us, and next week we'll see by whether or not all of that is animated and motivated and generated by a renewed mind where we think differently, and that's what we've been given the first 11 chapters for. It's an amazingly tight, wound argument that Paul gives. So next week, we're going to go to verse 2, and we're going to talk about worldliness. And just come back. It'll <laughs> I've been so convicted. I've been living in this for a few weeks now, and I can't wait to dispense this so we can all feel it, okay? You can join me. Not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind.